Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 18 The Springs The months of winter passed slowly. Most days, Lara, Jan, and Dane woke with the family, joined them for breakfast, and left with Toman to help with the day's work. As he had promised, they saw much of the city this way, and grew acquainted with its people. On days when the work was finished early, Toman taught the girls some of the woodworking skills Dane had been shown on his first journey there. Lara proved more apt to this than Jan, who could not make the hammer and chisel work for her, and finally swore off the attempt with a resigned sigh. "'Didn't make me for a fine carver, I suppose,' she said. "'Which is lucky, since someone's got to sweep up.' They walked the mountains several more times, before the snows grew too heavy to allow the climb. On the rare days between storms, the brilliant sun revealed a city transformed, all its planes and angles muted and draped with purity. They spent a few of these precious sunlit afternoons hiking the surface of the snow with broad shoes laced to their feet, cumbersome, exhausting, and glorious exercise. Lara soon found her old wind fully returned. Her limbs ached pleasantly as she drifted to sleep at night with her winter lion beside her. They saw the subterranean ovens, deep caves with fragrant loaves filling odd sloping shelves, and the strong-armed mahogany bakers working the dough. Other caves made meat pies and roasts, the smell of herbs lacing the air. Their winter lions never followed them into the baking caves, disliking the heat from the ovens that suffused the passages. Lara watched with bemusement as Jan seemed to overflow with friendliness to all the folk they met. Many of Toman's regular customers soon greeted her by name with more warmth than they reserved for Toman himself. Jan's exuberance, the excess of her liveliness, stood in even greater relief against the calm of typical mahogany interactions. The counterpoint, however, never seemed to discomfit either Jan or her interlocutors. She continued as free and they as grave, with no embarrassment on her part nor false attempt at animation on theirs. Only the mahogany children, on whom gravity had apparently yet to fall, could match her. She was brimful of life and bubbling over with it. In the evenings, 
they returned to the house. The dark, carven doorway with its hidden woodwork grew familiar as a friend's face over the chill winter months. Lara learned the streets between it and Toman's workshop so well that on fine days she could sprint there in the twilight before the opening of the flowers lit the streets. Her illness had entirely fled, and her body had grown strong in limb and breath, stronger far than in any of her past winters. She, Jan, and Dane would race back, panting at the close of the workday, with the fluid speed of their winter lions flanking them, and the dim sun's final light dwelling deep as an old story in the recesses of the streets. More frequently, however, they all three walked back together, for Toman would release them in the hour before he himself left, so that they might help with the evening meal's preparations. Those walks, at the day's close, lived in Lara's memory for long after, touched with the heady spice of companionship. She, Jan, and Dane spoke easily, warmly, or walked in contented silence. She learned a great deal of the land into which she had been born, for Jan's trading family, and even more Dane's many journeys, had taken both of them far and into strange company. She asked countless questions of the other peoples the old peddler woman had told her about all those seasons ago, the dwarves, the lamia, the elves. Dane's first sending had taken him to a nomadic family of dwarves far to the east, many leagues from the sea. He said he had never seen the subterranean hulls of which the peddler woman had spoken, other peoples rarely did, and that the family to which he travelled had also never seen them. Their Dwaro blood mingled with Dryad, descending as they did from a young dwarf who had long ago left her kinsfolk and bore a son who married a Dryad woman. But in their wandering they yet kept the feasts of kings after the custom of their home. These Dane described at length for he had passed a full season cycle with the family, and many of the feasts, more than twenty, all told, followed a like pattern. They like the temple feast? Jan asked. Like and yet unlike, Dane said. They do not tell any stories of the goddess, for one. And some only take place over a libation cup and a dish of dried fruits. But others of them last a full week, as the days of the feast do. They seem chiefly to aid in the learning of dwarven genealogy and history, for they're young. The stories of events and lives of kings and queens are set to song, and none of the family had any need of writ to follow, as I did. Even that was thready, a single long roll of hide, with the markings burned in its surface, and much of the actual recitation only sketched in the occasional signal phrase, they went slowly for my sake, and would often stop to make explanation, but, but even so, I struggled to hear and catch all they sang. I had only seen fourteen winters at the time, of course. The god, the goddess sent you alone all that way? Lara asked, incredulous. No, not so young. An older runner guided me to the place before she continued on her own errand, 
further east of the encampment. Where was she bound? Lara said. Dane paused. I do not know for certain, he said. We do not always speak of the errands given us unless we may. He looked briefly to his right, where his hoary winter lion paced beside him, and said, I believe she went to the Lamia. Lara felt a thrill of interest and fear. The word guttings still followed her. But so did the old imagining, the tall, robed, regal figures holding hearts aglow in their palms. Why do you think that? In time since, my learning has included some knowledge of the peoples and their lands, Dane said. This family of dwarves lived very far to the east, beyond the splintered mountains, approaching the wasteland. I know of no other peoples who make a home further than that point. Yet earlier that spring, two wilders of Lamia had broken away from the Great One near the high lake hidden in the mountain pass, and it was said that they travelled east. It could be that they found a way to live in the wasteland. Have you spoken with the Lamia, then? Lara asked. Dane shook his head. They live secluded do not often hold speech with those outside their communities, except for those appointed ones who bring to them the dangerous ones to meet with wilder justice. Others of the runners, like the woman who is my guide, have known some concord with them. What I know, I know because these others have told me. Lara held in her mouth the question, What do you mean, the dangerous ones, wilder justice? But before she could put words to it, Jan spoke. My family trades with some of the wilders, Jan said. Never so far as High Lake, us, but my first routes with Ama were to the wilder deep in Dwimmerdale. I loved those journeys. Just Ama and me for all the miles. At home I didn't get her alone often. I thought your family had taken the goddess's mark, said Lara. Yes, said Jan. Well then, Lara said, don't the Lamia hate the goddess? Why would they trade with you? Jan looked at her with a measure of confusion. Hate the goddess? I've never known them to do so. They are folk of great warmth. Ama had the respect and friendship of many there, and I knew nothing but kindness among them. And she it was who taught me of their fostering of castoffs. In the lands surrounding their wilders, most folk know that the Lamia will take in abandoned babes and young. The children often grow to join the wild, though some they find homes for once they reach their fifth winter. Lara said, confused, Girls and boys both, but I thought the Lamia do not teach men. Jan laughed. That rumour is always bandied about. It's true most are women, but they've no quarrel with men. Perhaps that rumour is why most who come as initiates are women. She tilted her head, a distant smile lingering, remembering the trading journeys. Ama and I loved those times. She had great respect for them, Mark or no Mark. And the Lamia knew it. Besides, Jan grinned, Ama's plums and melons and her cinnamon and honey... Ah, the sheaves of sugar grasses and the vials of spirits and the leaf teas and her yams. 
Dane gave a shocking crow of laughter, and Lara begrudgingly joined in. She had more questions, but at that moment they had come to the familiar archway entrance to Toman and Nissa's home, and Jan and Dane preceded her into the house, still laughing. Lara followed a step or two behind, pausing to look up into the shadows of the carven arch. Its darkness seemed to hold that terrible word. Guttings. She shivered once and went inside. The deepest part of winter came and went, and the weeks slowly ground towards spring. Too slowly for the three young people, whose exposure to winter had rarely been so long nor so harsh as this. One morning, as they sat together breaking their nights fast, Doman looked at the faces around him. Lara and Jan especially seemed heavy with the cold and the long, dark hours. He turned to Nyssa, speaking lowly in their own tongue, and she replied with a single nod. Toman said, And Nissa and I think it well that today we should not go to the workshop, but rather to the springs. Leah let out a squeak of joy and began to bounce in her seat. Her brothers smiled. The springs, Lara said, and they are much frequented at this time, Toman said. Hot springs from beneath the mountain, whose waters come up in cave pools, very near to the baking caverns. It is custom for the final winter months that the springs should be made open to those who wish to visit them, the young especially, and the very old, and the weakened among the people. Any upon whom the winter sits, hardly, and we shall take you there this day, so that your bodies might have a reprieve from the cold. May I go with Letta? Leah had ejected herself from her seat and now bobbed excitedly at Nissa's elbow, now at Tomon's. May I? She goes to the springs all the time. Tomon smiled at his daughter. And we shall stop at her home as we walk there, my love. If Letta is at home, we shall ask of her parents if she may accompany us to the springs. Leah made a bright scree of pleasure and began dancing in and out of the room, the remnants of her meal entirely forgotten. Her winter lion snaked its head round the high-backed chair where she had been sitting, set two paws on the chair's seat, and lapped up the food contentedly. The act seemed familiar, unstudied. The rest of the family did not spare it a glance. Once the family and their guests had cleared the detritus of their meal and set the kitchen and the table in clean readiness for the next, they each went to their rooms to dress in preparation for the springs. John knocked at Jan and Lara's door, leaving an armful of clothes at its foot. The girl sorted through the garments, spare ones of Nissa's, and all slightly long for them. They dressed slowly, consulting one another as they did. Beneath, they wore an odd single garment of smooth weave with the legs shorn at the knee and the arms at the curve of the shoulder. Nissa had provided them also with two robes worn over top, 
the first a thin wool with close-fitting sleeves, its overlapping leaves belted neatly above the hips, the second of a thick and heavy stuff that rose in a wide ruff at the neck and fell to their boot tips. This, then, would shield them from the outdoors as they walked to the springs. The walk through the streets that day felt far pleasanter than the daily walking to and from Toman's shop, knowing now that the terminus meant warmth and respite from the snows. All the family wore the outer robe with its high neck and deep folds, though Leah's kept tripping her until at last Tion lifted her in his arms, where she presided with glee over their progress. The stop at her friend Letta's home resulted in a second small girl child who, upon seeing Leah, insisted on being carried in like fashion. Dane bent and let her scramble up to his right shoulder, where with a strong arm as stay, he held her as though in a litter and walked beside Tion so the girls could crow and chatter together. As they came into the streets near to the springs, others from among the people walking that day began to appear with robes like their own. Some families had come, but chiefly the robed ones seemed to be young people, a group of friends, a solitary young man, several young women walking abreast, or two lads with hands clasped. At times, Lara saw a young person accompanying an elder whose slow step showed pain and patience. Once she saw a man of perhaps middle age leading a flock of little children, their winter lions weaving like wind among grasses. All these converged in glad procession on the entrance to the springs. Soon Lara could see the mouth of the caves. The caverns where the bread-makers worked had small mouths, low, plain, and dim, and admitted entrance into long passages lined with carefully fitted shelves for the loaves. But the caves into the springs opened high and broad, and on either side graceful wooden trellises fastened to the rock bore an abundance of green vines. Among their leaves twinkled a thousand tiny flowers, pale gold, with glowing points of light at their hearts, like the flowers that illumined Toman and Nissa's home at night. Lara drew in her breath in pleasure, and felt an easing in her breast, as though the first fair winds of spring had brushed her face at last. Leah and Letta had wriggled themselves out of their bearers' arms as soon as they saw the entrance, and they now ran like little comets of joy out in front of the family. Nissa called to them to keep together and meet them in the first pool, and Leah spun once, shrieked her assent, and sped off hand in hand with her friend. The rest of the family entered more sedately. Lara could see that the springs consisted of several joined caverns, all light and airy, with great sweeps of space within and above. The first they entered had carved wooden hooks and cabinets all along the walls, and Toman and Nissa led them to a small section above which hung a tiny plaque with the rayed star upon it, the same set into the top of the entrance to their home. 
The little girl's outer robes already lay folded, somewhat hastily, within the cabinet lowest to the ground. Toman, Nissa, John, and Tion hung theirs on the hooks, and the three guests imitated them. Clad, then, in the thin, belted inner robes, they followed the family to the back of the chamber, where a door led into the next cavern. And walking in, they felt the warmth, heard the lapping of waters. The cavern's roof swept to great height above them, and twining up the walls bound to the strong, curving stone, the tiny golden flowers grew. The light of them filled the space, and Lara had the odd feeling of standing on the surface of another world, a world with sky green and gold rather than blue. Spreading at her feet, the springs welled in wide pools among the rocks. The mahogany's had alter very little here, barring the trellises for the flowers, but they had tooled steps into the sides of the pools at intervals, and benches beneath the water for the weary to sit. And this first of the springs, Nissa said to them, runs shallow enough for the little ones. Toman and I will remain here with Leah and her friend, but the others may choose where they shall go. John and Tion can show the guests the deeper pools. They bid them farewell and waded into the water's warmth, finding places to sit near to where their daughter played. John beckoned to Jan, Dane, and Lara to follow he and his brother towards the far archway, where they could see the play of light on water reflected on the surface of the stone. The boys showed them several of the other caverns, all warm like wombs sunk back into the mountains, caverns with pools deep enough for diving, caverns where the springs burst from beneath the water's surface and the bathers broke into hilarity as the spurts caught them at unawares, caverns where the water flowed river-like in curves, caverns dimmed of light and peopled only sparsely by quiet, meditative figures. John and Tion went to one of the diving pools, and Jan and Dane remained to leap and run among the geysers before tiring and finally floating in another cavern where the spring's tumult, deep under the earth, could only be felt at the pool's surface as a buoyant welling. Lara did not join them. She walked between the caverns for some time before at last coming to rest in the dark pools and the silent bathers. She swam, delight in her limbs at the warmth, floated on her back and closed her eyes, thinking for the first time in many months of her home and the faces of her mother and father. A catch in her breast pierced her as she drew her arms languidly above her head, and she gazed into the dark above her as though into her parents' muted eyes. Her memory of their features had blurred, but sharp as swords she recalled their persons, the shut-up city of their minds toward which for many seasons she had starved for entrance. 
At last she found one of the few benches sunk into the water and sat with her neck against the sloping edge of the pool behind her. If they had only let her close, as with ease Jan even Dane had done, she could have been a good daughter to them. She gave a great inward sigh and passed her hand over her eyes. Suddenly and softly, as though it came from the dark sweep of space above her, she thought she heard Toron's warm voice. Come, little sister. You need not fear. In the cavern's dome, she saw with surprise an occasional bloom, deep indigo, with the light pulsing at its heart. She watched these for some time before she became sensible to another presence beside her. Turning her head, she saw a mahogany man she vaguely thought she recognized. She nodded to him cautiously, and he raised his palm in greeting. It took her some moments, but she at last recollected his face when she pictured it betwixt the pillars of the gun. He had been there, the day they had come to ask for a place for the winter. "'You are Lara,' he said, his voice quiet above the lapping and murmur of the dim pool. "'Yes,' she said, "'I have seen you in the garden.' "'And I am called Tallinn,' he said. They spoke no further for some time. Lara, once he had made no attempt at engaging her in conversation again, let her mind slip from him and return to the silence, the waters, the distant dark lights at the apex of the cavern, the ache at the heart. When he again spoke, she startled as though from a trance. And you have now lived with the family of Nissa and Toman for this winter, he said. Lara did not reply. It was not a question, after all. He asked, Do you then leave in the spring? I suppose so said Lara. You go to find your hearts, he said, and bring them to the summer mountain. Yes. And many among us wondered greatly, he said, that the marked one among you should find welcome in the home of Nyssa. To that welcome for a seeker seems hardly to be spoken of, and yet these many months have gone by, and we have not seen the family again before the gun. Lara felt confused. Why would you? Many thought Nissa would recant her welcome, he said. When she did not, some then began to say that she would return with an answer. And yet neither has she come before the gun to ask that the marked one go from her home, nor to tell of the answer he has given. The answer? Talin looked at her, himself confused now. From the god. The answer to what? She has not asked his marked one. Asked him what? Talin's pale face was unreadable, but Lara thought, in its calmness, 
she caught a hint of surprise. He took some time in at last composing his response. And perhaps it is that you know of the death of her son, he said. Lara nodded. At the time of his death she came before the gun with great quiet. She stood at the head of the spar and spoke out a sentence against the god, saying that she demanded he answer for her son's death. He should have her hearts no longer until he answered her. She called upon the people to raise her to his notice, and we all, with loud voice, cried with her, Why? When the room fell silent again, she left her place and did not look back. But in the winters that followed, no word came from the god. Each spring on the day of his death, Nissa returned with the question. And she stood before the gun with the voice of the people to shout it as one. When this runner, Dane, came before us, and Nyssa did not turn him aside, but gave him welcome, we thought to hear of the gods' answer before many days passed, and yet no word has come. Lara took in the image, wonderingly. She saw, as though she had been present, Nissa's graven face above the sweep of the spar, shouting, Why? As she had in her home that first day they had arrived. He owes me answer, she had said. Dane's coming, Lara thought. What did it signify? The gods sent me to the home of your family, he had said to Toman when they first met in the woods. Weak with her sickness, she had given it little thought at the time. But why had the gods sent him? Why, if not to answer Nyssa's summons? And yet Nyssa had not asked anything of him in all the months they had stayed in her home, or if she had, she had done it privately and told no one. Strange that such a public grievance should have no public reply. And I see from your silence that you too have heard nothing of the god's answer, said Talin. Lara shook her head. I have not. Her companion sat back. It is a strange matter, he said in a soft voice, as though to himself. And there are many among us who would desire to hear the answer, having put the question. There are none among you who can give answer? Lara asked. In the time that followed, many of the great wise ones among us came to speak with Nyssa, he said, but she would hear none of them. She said she must have word from the god direct, and not from any interpreter or guesser. 
In this she slighted many who have known him well, but they thought in her grief to take no offence to it. And she said further that his answer must come straight to speak of her boy's death alone, and not of grand sayings about the god's mystery or love. The people soon learned to keep their peace before her, barring the single word, Why? Each spring on the day she came again to shout at the god. I am sorry I have nothing to tell, Lara said finally, not knowing what to make of his words. Talin laced his fingers together before him, staring at them. I, too, he said. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Ben-Avraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon, we make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much. <laughs>